All right. Well, welcome back to the Optimum Drive podcast presented by TFL. This is a midweek bonus podcast. And uh, as hopefully you've been kind of keeping up, this is going to be episode three. Yeah, three of my conversation with my good friend and just racing super talent, uh, Tanner Faust. And so uh, I look forward to having Tanner on here again. Tanner, you ready to go? Yeah, three of 27, right? Three of 27, exactly. Yes, perfect. Let's keep it going. That could be the case, actually. We joke, but we we secretly know that could be the case. Yeah, no, I got a catheter hooked up. I got a water line coming in. We're we're good for at least a week. Perfect. So you got my notes I sent you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and your instructions on how to hook that up. Thank you. That was great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I, I insisted on having to see all of it. But anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So what we're going to do here is uh, is in the last episode, uh, just to kind of, and again, if you haven't watched them, I would go back and watch them because they're definitely all connected together. Um, we had two episodes prior where we kind of went through Tanner's career and it took a couple of episodes and he he had done so much stuff before I had met him and I wanted to get a good idea of, of sort of his philosophy and how that was sort of built over his his childhood of experimentation and curiosity and kind of working his way up to the point through all the things he did where he ended up, you know, kind of forging this kind of unprecedented career in motorsports. I don't think there are a lot of guys that can say that they've won, you know, big drifting championships, plural, and have also got in and driven an F1 car for Zach Brown, um, you know, and and many, many points of, of contact in between and, and every type of motorsport you can imagine. So, I think it's safe to say, Tanner, your your career has been quite unique in what you've been able to do and how you've done it and how long you've sustained it. Maybe that's the other cool point is that we're kind of getting getting along in years. You're not as old as I am. I'll, I'll make that point. Uh, but <laughs> but the thing is, is you're still actively racing in, you know, in in uh, extreme e-racing. So you're still a contracted professional racing driver. And I, I imagine you keep on going. Uh, because you're still, you know, on the on the top of your game, and that's kind of really what I want to spend this podcast talking about. Um, is we didn't touch on a couple things that'll kind of help us get into sort of your method of driving. I think people would be really interested in kind of understanding, you know, how you approach a race weekend when your race weekend could be in a drift car. It could be at Velocity International in a Formula One car. Um, it could be. Uh, kind of doing just about anything. And um, and I think that's kind of fascinating because I would imagine that there is some consistency through that method and also some adapting you have to do for the variety of things that you go drive. And I think to people that are either <laughs> flat out professionals today to rank amateurs would probably be pretty interested in that process. So I'm hoping we can talk about that. Does that sound reasonable? I might have to make something up, but yeah, I'm I'm ready to do that. <laughs> why why change? You know, you've been doing exactly. that already for the prior two episodes. So let's keep that theme of don't let the yep. facts get in the way of a good story. Right. And, yes. Uh, and keep that rocking along. And so so yeah, we kind of open up into that. Um, and one of the things that you and I did very early on together was we went and did. Kind of on a whim, we rented a couple of Wells Coyotes and we went and did Pikes Peak in 2002, I think it was. When it, it was, was 2002. Which is, yep. It, well, yeah, the first mile was paved and the rest was dirt. 
and it was the the first year Stig Bloomquist. I remember being in the rookie meeting. You remember that was? I remember that. Yes, that was pretty cool. Stig Um, freaking Bloomquist was in our rookie meeting. I know they were calling out a roll call, and they're like Stig Bloomquist, like looking around, like and they mispronounce it. You're like, oh my god, he's like a legend. How can you say his name wrong? You know. I know, and Per Eklund also was in there. Per Eklund. Yeah. Who I went on to compete quite a bit with and against, really, in rallycross in Europe. Um, and turned out to be just a lovely guy. He's just an awesome dude. He's a really sweet guy. And with like a yes. total animal behind the wheel. Like a total animal. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he is. An, yeah. And uh, yeah, though, Pikes Peak was, it was interesting, right? Because again, Brian Gale, who we talked about before, who was my manager at the time, kind of pieced yep. that together, had some beta tools thing, which is yeah. Italian tool company. He said it was the third largest tool company in the world. And I never heard of it. <laughs> I don't know. You you said you'd heard of it because they used to have a Formula One car. Formula One car, and they're in MotoGP, and they still are. So they're pretty big in MotoGP. Yeah, big in motorcycles. Yeah. I remember they had a lot of motorcycle tools, and um, he went and dangled the carrot to a couple mechanics basically who wrenched on their own Wells Coyote, you know, which is like a sprint car with a three speed and, uh, and a bunch of wings dangled some Italian tools for those guys, like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of tools to, to rent the cars. Remember? And, and we did it and it was, uh, we went out to some rock quarry to test them or something. It was like a DOT, DOT site. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, it was your car wouldn't run, and my car nope. would run. Yours was a mon. You told me all about how what a monster it was and everything. It did finally run. Mine ran on the mountain, but you know yeah. they're alcohol burning, so you had to adjust the pill as you the went up altitude. Just like uh, an airplane, actually, it's just like flying a tractor with wings, kind of where you're adjusting the mixture um, <laughs> as you go up in altitude. But uh, ended up finishing that year. Uh, two things came out of that. And, um, and I was happy. I think it was third in the class. But the second thing that came out of that is, I, it's, do you remember going to Circuit City and getting a Sony Handycam? <laughs> and then, did you remember this? <laughs> you used you the box. This. Oh, I cut a hole. Yeah, I cut a hole boxes, in the box yeah. and left it in the box uh-huh. and zip tied it, duct taped it and zip tied it to the cage and put a little piece of plexi uh, in front of the lens Filmed the whole run and then took the box back to Circuit City and with, got with the got camcorder in it and returned the camcorder. <laughs> Still had the camcorder in it, and uh, that I just thought that was genius. And that, I mean, hindsight is it's pretty immoral. Yes, I get it, but get it. Um, it was good in car footage, though. It was we had good in car footage. Yeah, we had yeah, it was great, and it was really fun. <laughs> it was super fun to do. Of course, it was. This is so typical of my existence, and that we could almost zoom to Pike's Peak this year. Um, but mm. I would always take the high horsepower, ridiculous car. You were always like, I don't know, will that make it? Uh, I'll take the more reliable car. You get to the top, finish third. I don't get to the top because my car yeah. never ran the whole week. Like it would, it would yeah. run for a mile and then start misfiring like crazy, and that's all it ever did. And yes. Uh, but it was a great experience. It was super fun. And we both had this. I had just moved to Colorado a couple of years prior. I don't know if you remember this, but I had had back surgery three weeks before the race and was forbidden mm-hmm. from doing the race. Oh. Uh, 
I had a, I had really bad sciatica and eventually got it, got, had surgery on it, which fixed it. And I came out and I'm like, I feel fine. And the doctor's like, don't you dare. Don't ever talk to me. Yeah. Do this. And I'm like, yeah. okay, goodbye. Cause I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was fine in the race car, but man, getting in and out. Cause those things you had to get in and out of the top of the I car. Do remember that. And it was I do really remember that. painful to get in and out of the car, but, but what an experience. And then of course I've done Pikes Peak now probably six or seven times. How many times have you done it now? Um, only twice on pavement. And then for a while, the rally championship yeah, went to Pikes Peak for a couple of years. So I probably have done it five times. And, um, but twice paved. This is a different event now, obviously. Completely. Um, and this, this year I did it in a Radford, uh, which was a, a Jensen Button, Ant Anstead, car that they it's like a bespoke car that they sell on the road they they got one of their their owners to pitch up money to develop a whole tube chat well not tube chassis carbon monocot carbon yeah uh, uh version of the car and then part of the deal was anything we developed they got to keep the tech to put into their new generation of road car which they got a, they did a huge amount of great engineering in europe all these different companies got yeah. involved including williams f1 and um jubu did the motor which they they have a, a huge amount of experience with those three and a half liter toyota motors that basically lotus uses uh anyway it was it was a decent car it was one of these weeks where when we showed up the car had just been stuck together and nothing really worked in unison and um pike speak is one of those runs that it's like try to get the car as good as you can the whole week. And then when you get to Sunday, you're only going to drive it as fast as you're comfortable at that point, yeah. you know? And if the car is really terrible, you're just going to have to drive it slower. You're going to hurt yourself and the car. And in that case, we did get the car pretty close to comfortable, I think. And I pushed reasonably hard, but yeah, um, it, it got under 10 minutes, which was the goal for me. And that was, that it was awesome to do that this year. It was, it was an impressive week to watch you. And we were in two different classes. And so the way Pikes Peak works is, um, you know, you're, you're practicing on different parts of the mountain. We're not the same place at the same time. So I didn't get to talk to you that often. It was really, we really caught up at FanFest when we had dinner together. But, um, right. but I was kind of tracking you through the week. And, um, and it was like, and I was having the same kind of week. I had a car that I had just jumped into that was based on a Wells Coyote, um, but a, a road racing version of that. And I had this, a similar week that we had them completely separately. And then just like 2002, you had a great run and I had a DNF. <laughs> so, I, I am hate, so sorry, Paul. I, I put that together in my head as I was saying it just now. And I realized like, yeah. This is not going to sound good for you, Paul. You probably shouldn't even do this, but I'm like, Don't well, say it. it's actually the truth. I have had good yeah. runs in between. I, I still haven't had a great run up that mountain, I, and but I, I adore that event. I just think it's like the coolest damn thing you can do in a car because the cars can be out, outrageous. I mean, there there truly is a an actual unlimited class that, that I'm usually racing in. Um where there are only safety rules. There are no performance rules on the car. And yeah. You can build something as fast as a Formula One car, um, you know, and, and you're allowed to run it there on this crazy mountain road in Colorado. So it's, you know, kind of the premier hill hill climb in the world. Um, people come from everywhere. It's so cool to see the international folks that show up at that every year. 
And um, and yeah, so that's that's just an amazing event. And and as usual, you outperform me. And I and I'd also say the last time I saw you there was when you were running in that spec um, GT4 class, and yes. you didn't get to run to the top. But right. and, and and because of that, Travis still has the record. But I want to make the point that you broke his qualifying record by quite a bit. And also during your run, you were faster in all the segments than than uh, Travis yeah. was. But because we well, didn't get I, to run to the top, you didn't get the record. I beat his qualifying record by a little bit. It wasn't that much. Travis <laughs> went very, when I did the qualifying run and I got there and the cars aren't, it's a spec class, but the cars aren't all even. Yeah. There, they are uh, some tuning differences and suspension differences and things. And I, I had the factory owned car, the Porsche owned car, which came 100% stock stock. So whether there was a difference in cars or not, if you talk to different competitors, they say that there there's a marginal amount of mod you can do, but whatever the case, the, the window of performance modification is pretty small. And yeah. I thought that I pushed pretty hard and flowed pretty well and Travis is one of the most underestimated road race guys out yeah. there. He gets a lot of slack because he's big action sports guy. He's always elbow out, thumbs up, and and you know he's got just a, a, this great attitude that he on camera that he's had you know since he was a kid. But you know even in Daytona when he was in a Ferrari, he was fast. And when he does hill climbs in the Subaru, it just looks yeah. It, people Goodwood think of it as dumb. Because yeah. it looks silly fast. Yeah, Goodwood, for example. But he is a talent when it not just for rally in rally racing, but road racing also. So but he so that was cool to beat him there. And I texted him right away and let him know. And uh then it was uh uh then it was on. And so then that was it was a real bummer when we didn't go to the top, but that's yeah. that's that's that mountain. Yep, that is that mountain. And so it is always good fun, and um, it's great. It's always great to see you there, and and um, and maybe you'll actually get to witness me making a full power. That'd be great. Pass one day. I mean, in theory, it could happen, right? So we'll see. We'll see next year. But yeah, uh, that'd, that'd be great. And the other thing, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about again, we're sort of transitioning to talking about driving, and I, I do want to use all that. And of course, you already, by the way, get bonus points because you already said the word flow. So. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Again, your Venmo <laughs> account will be ringing. Yeah, I'll take um, it. I'll take with it. that. And the other thing that we didn't talk about in the prior episodes, which I think is really important for this transition into talking about driving, is you've also, at least a couple times, right, you've been to Race of Champions. And um, and that event, you get to go head to head. If you don't, if if you guys don't know what that event is, you know, look it up because it's awesome. Um, but it basically is done every year in some location and it's um, usually done in a stadium and they bring in a whole variety of different vehicles and they bring in the champions from around the world in kind of all the disciplines. And it ends up being like an international thing, almost kind of like the Olympics, because you have teams for each country and then an individual race as well. And you're kind of doing a elimination rounds with everybody uh, to figure out who the champion of champions is at the race of champions of course uh started by michelle mouton speaking yeah. of pikes peak and and rally driving and yeah. uh you could probably catch you know and we also talked about those old duke video uh yeah. you know, vhs tapes but i remember watching those original ones and i think it maybe played a little bit on wide world of sports occasionally oh yeah when they were like in the 
in the Canary Islands. Canary Islands. Canary Islands. And they had this huge outdoor course that had a crossover. And that's kind of the thing about Race of Champions is it's not wheel to wheel, fender to fender. It's it's two different lanes, but they do a crossover so that you have to run and it's two laps. So everyone drives over the same tarmac exactly. And so theoretically, it's all equal, but no one gets to bash into one another. So, um, right. Yeah, and you go against somebody and it's two out of three. So you'll do this lane, then yeah, you two out of three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five, and you know, um, and there's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I've done it four times now, actually. Oh, four times. Wow. Yeah, yeah because yeah. I did it last year also um, on the ice. And previous to that, I'd done it in um, Wembley. Uh, where they they used to cool. do them in stadiums after Canary Islands, where they yeah. were outdoors, they did them in stadiums, and so did Wembley, and then they did um, in Beijing, they did the, in the Bird Cage, uh, the old yeah. two thousand eight Olympic Bird Cage, yeah. uh, and then the last one was in Hamburg, Germany, and there were super cool events. It really was centered around Michael Schumacher. He was always the big draw. Yeah. Um, in China, when in Beijing, they they did the introduction. There were probably sixty to eighty thousand people, which is pretty big turnout for a Thursday event or you know something like that. And um, I've never been with Travis where they and Travis Pastrana and crickets and <laughs> you know Sebastian Loeb crickets. Like every single person was only there for Schumacher. And uh, the place erupted when they announced him and he had people stalking the hotels. It was like, I mean, it was this full thing. Yeah. And that's when I realized at that time that he was you know, the most famous human being in the world. And there, you know, this was pre, you know, Kardashian and, and reality superstar stuff. Um, the biggest show in the world was Baywatch probably. Right. So you had, Hasselhoff, so American. <laughs> it was the biggest show in the world at that time, and uh, so that's like that's because uh, of Hasselhoff. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you had the Hoff, and you had Schumacher, probably the biggest, fam- <laughs> most famous people. Then isn't that crazy? That's, and that wasn't even that long ago. Yeah, but it wasn't that long ago. yeah, but that, those events are cool. I did get to my first round beat uh, Jensen Button in the buggies. Of course, it, it was it it lent towards me, right? Because I, I driven on the ice. I'd done all these different off-roady stuff, rally stuff, this and that. So then when you pin up against a uh, Jensen who went from go-karting to formula to formula one and done, right. um, now he does other stuff, sports car and things like that. But back then he was on a, you know, the fast lane to formula one. They didn't really get to experience. Oh, you have to like downshift and then slip the clutch, like, on the downshift to try to get the back tires not to hop under braking, you know, things like little weird tricks for those buggies. Um, would, that was like a foreign language. They, they would guys. normally park a car for that. You're like, no, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is how they are. You're going to have to yeah, this is what they do. Like, Where's my and, engineer? <laughs> yeah. So I got Schumacher, I got Vettel and I got uh, um, Jensen and not all in the first couple years as the drift guy. And so that that was like basically I could die at that point. That was so, that was so all. You, when you say you got, you're saying you beaten. Yeah, B, I went head to head with those guys and beat them head to head. All right. Yeah. So so just in case you were wondering, like you know where does where does Tanner Faust fit in? And again, he was very humble and he said, "Hey, it's kind of more my wheelhouse, the type of car we were driving and the kind of event for, sh- for sure." But that's still you know. 
that's still something. I mean, that's really yeah. cool. And um, and so yeah. that's kind of what's neat about again talking transitioning talking about driving with you is like you've had these experiences with these guys and we talked about in the uh, in the first episode how you know you've ridden with Colin McRae and you know and, and people like that so this is this is all kind of cool I mean maybe I don't think you take it for granted because you talk about it with such humility but but it's amazing that you have these experiences that I mean yeah. I don't know that anyone could tell this story that you're telling, you know, because it's it's very unique to have these experiences where you're considered to be like an action sports guy. And that's maybe that it's not a fair characterization, but it's because of, you know, you spent a lot of your career in those types of sports. But I know from driving head to head, and we talked about in the very beginning how you started out as a road racing guy. That's what you wanted to do until you realized the path to road racing was so damn expensive. And then, you know, you met Scott Crouch and rallying and you're like, wait a minute, here's another way I can go. And, and, uh, and kind of, you set off running in that direction, but it, it's to point out, you still have, you've got some motorsport chops here uh, in, in any way that we want to slice the pie. Um, you can get a car around the corner pretty well, whether you're on pavement, on dirt, on ice, whatever, and whatever that vehicle may be. And I think that's, that's a cool thing. And I, you know, and kudos to you, of course, for developing that. And um, and I, I think you, and well, you I also, before we get too serious, though, you had some funny stories about yeah. Schumacher. I remember something about I him cannot, liking I, pulling pockets on jeans down and things like that. Well, I think Travis started that. It was like a sleeve <laughs> thing, and then it turned into the pockets thing. He was good about, I mean, because he was. Schumacher and nobody else really was in that same fame level understands, but he was very good about no cameras being around. And so uh, when we went to a party, everything was always, there's no, you know, no windows and, and no cameras. Travis, the first year walked in literally with a Red Bull helmet with cameras all over it and a whole backpack of battery packs, you know, for these cameras and they were doing this. Yeah, well, no, not, not, that was what he was doing there. Right. This was, you know, right at the beginning, everybody just making massive amounts of content. And so Red Bull had him documenting behind the scenes all the driver's briefings, all this stuff in the locker room, everything. He'd have this helmet on. He was embarrassed about it, but it was, and then (laughs) as soon as he walked in, Schumacher just walked right up to the back of the thing and just unplugged the cord and was like, no cameras. And, <laughs> and it was, uh, that, and that was good. It was, it, it those events, um, Wembley was one thing. It was the first one. Everybody had some place to be at night, but in China, nobody knew anybody. Uh, you couldn't just go out of the hotel and go, you know, grab dinner somewhere. They sort of brought everything to us. And and so we all hung out and we went to the Great Wall of China together. And we all sort of went oh, through cool. this stuff together, all the drivers, which was which was really fun. And um, I still, you know, uh, still still have good relationships from from doing those events. Um, doing it this last year, Travis and I teamed up. And uh, he was busy and I was busy and it turned into like, if he's going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I was like, I'm definitely doing it. If Travis did it, it." Travis was like, okay, if Tanner's in, then then let's go. And then we just got our asses kicked. We're, we're on the ice and it was all spikes. And then it was the second year doing it. And um, we had, they changed the format to where they stuck all the rally guys and off-road guys against each other. 
and then all the formula guys against each other. And then in the finals, it was one formula guy, one rally guy. So you're up against um, guys that were all Swedish. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Petter Solberg and his son, Oliver, and, you know, it's just like, uh, um, we just got our asses handed. We, we just have not enough experience with spikes on ice and knowing it, it was the kind of thing where the spikes would shred the ice and build snow up on the outside. And a lot of the race cars were racing slicks with spikes sticking out of them. So once the spikes were out of the window right. and you were on the snow, then it was actually a racing slick on snow. And so you were just done. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Not and ideal. not ideal, but it, it was a good learning experience. Travis, Travis and I both started drinking early each day. Um, a lot of time spent in the sauna. Commiserating. Um, yeah, commiserating. Got to know Valtteri Bottas pretty good there from sauna time because he never missed a sauna. And then he does a bike race. Really, I was literally, say he comes to Steamboat. Yeah. Yeah, so we had breakfast there, and and um, oh, cool. and he'll do it again, I'm sure, next year. And, and and so that's one of those events you get to meet these people that have such different racing backgrounds, learn a little bit about their childhood and how different it was from you know mine going to to school to be a doctor and stuff. Um, but every racer has a different story. It, it it's just cool to meet these guys that are just at such the top of their game, you know. Yeah, and I think your point, like every racer has a different story, is a is is a good one, and and um, it is funny because we we get asked all the time, you know, how how did you do it? And you're almost just like, well, this ain't a template, <laughs> trust me. Because I, I I would almost say for any of us, like you know, again, you and I have a lot of parallels. We didn't cart, you know, we had this time in England and Northern Virginia, and we started racing late, and all of these things. We have a lot of parallels, but. Within all of that, there's a lot of differences, as we sort of discussed. There's a lot of things that are different. And um, and and you and I are, I mean, that's pretty close. Like, most of them are really different. And, of course, most of them start out, you know, these guys. And I love the pictures that are showing up lately with the latest crop of Formula One guys. I just saw one today. But it shows them all as kids racing carts together when they were yeah. seven, eight, seven, eight, nine years old. and. They're all lined up there. I saw a, a thing on Lewis Hamilton the other day. Uh, there was a show in England. I don't know if you ever watched. I bet you did actually in Scotland. They would have had it. Do you remember a show called Blue Peter? That was um, like it was like a kids variety show that ran forever in the UK and used to watch that all the time. And and they had Lewis Hamilton on there as a. He looked like he was maybe four or five in the beginning, mm. racing RC cars, mm. and that's all he was doing. He hadn't been in a cart yet. And so the guy from the reporter is like, okay, I'm going to jump in this race with all these kids, you know, and, and uh, they do a race. And, and at the end, they're like, who wins? And Lewis is like half the height of the other kids because he's so little. Oh, okay. so, he was so young. And he, his hand goes up and he's like, what's your name? And he's like, Lewis Hamilton, you know, he's in a little, little four-year-old yeah. voice, Lewis Hamilton. And, 
just just this determination that was in his voice like of course i won <laughs> like, yeah and um and then and then they showed it because they showed him all the times he'd been on blue peter and then he had he came on as a kart racer when he was like it was probably like four or five years later so he was like 10 or 11 and now he was a karting champion and they're like you might remember lewis from racing rc cars years ago and uh, and now he's a karting champion, and so they revisit it, and then boom, they go forward to like his first year at McLaren in F one, um, and it, yep. it's just like okay, that's a journey, you know. Like, I mean, these it's like gymnastics almost, right? And and you know, a lot of people in the U.S. don't realize that motorsport is different there. It's different around the rest of the world. Different they, around the rest of the world. The way that it works, sort of around the rest of the world, is you have soccer and racing. Yeah. And those are the two things here in the States. We have kind of the pie split between a lot of big sports, things that stick and ball. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. All the football and, and baseball and basketball. It, and we, yes, we have racing. Yes, we have soccer, but you know, we have so many different sports to split the same size pie up that um, over there, if you're, parents friends or you know it's kind of like gymnastics where if you get plucked out at like six or seven years old as yeah. being good in rc cars maybe yeah even, i mean that may be like hey let's homeschool and put our head down and let's make this happen you know and that's a real possibility and here you have you know the winningest driver ever but it's like uh over here that's pretty long shot i mean yeah maybe circle track racing you know, to get into NASCAR, yes, maybe if you're yes. something like amazing as a kid in a sprint car or yeah. something. But otherwise, you don't just get plucked into motorsport because of performance. No. You get plucked in because of a lot of other things, too. Yeah, I mean, and typically what we see, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like NASCAR has a true feeder ladder that starts with dirt, tiny little dirt ovals and carts for, for kids. And and it, and it keeps feeding. And I think like you do have people that are in NASCAR today that came through that system that did not do it on family money. Like they, they did, they actually went through the system and the system supported them. And in the, in the U S as you say, like for, for road racing, that doesn't really exist. It does from time to time. Like, you know, we had a pretty good one uh, at Skip Harbor, you know, and, and so there's scholarship programs there. Um, you know, there, there was star Mazda Mazda was doing a lot of promoting through a lot of their championships for many years, but all of those took also some family money. It was never enough to do like a full season. And the numbers are so astonishing that, and they're like, well, you know, you need to have some skin in the game was their way of saying, but we don't have enough money to really put you in this championship, but we, right. you know, so you're going to need to bring half of it or a third of it or whatever it is. But when you're talking about millions of dollars to race in these championships, then you're talking about, you know, at, at the very least, like a million bucks or so that you have to come up with with yourself. And of course, now sure. you, you've narrowed that pool down to a very few amount of people that can either find sponsorship at that level or have family money at that level, you know, disposable money at that level where they can go into motorsports. It, so it was always Europe, tough not to like watch. That. It was What's always that? tough to watch because Skip Barber, for example, you know, they want their scholars to go on and yeah. be. Lewis Hamilton's of the world, right? And so they would give the scholarships to people that would have the best chance of success. Yes. And a huge part of that was they had some family money sitting around. Yeah, yeah. And, and I dealt with that same thing in Europe with Winfield. I, I was actually the fastest guy at the competition 
And uh, and they didn't want to have anything to do with me, even though it was only supposed to be based on speed because I had no parting part background. I was too old and I didn't have family money. So they did their yeah. obligations and let me race like they were supposed to, but they did not support me or try and push me further up the ladder like they would have done if I had some money in my pockets. Yeah, I mean, one of the most unique examples in the U.S. was a rare window, and I and I guess those those opportunities are still coming around. But Scott Speed, my old teammate, who, um, uh, you know, the first time I met him, he was doing a I was doing rotary rockets, which we talked about in the yeah. last podcast a little bit, um, Formula Mazers, and I gave a scholarship to the winner of the Stars of Tomorrow go-kart race in las vegas at paul tracy's track um which now is i think a, an experiential supercar track but um he won the race scott speed did and i gave him the scholarship on stage and everything i think he was a pimply 15 year old and he went on to do star mazda and then a red bull driver search thing right. and went into formula one yeah and yeah. it was the lottery his brother, as he will tell you openly, was faster than he was in a go-kart. Right. And his dad had kind of a karting school uh, coaching setup, and his brother did also. And uh, Scott, was he still is an amazing driver. And uh, so those those performance-based – and, he, you know, his family wasn't wealthy. So those performance-based things can happen, but mm -hmm. there are very few that are the real deal um like yeah. that one was with red bull yeah red bull certainly has pumped a ton of money love or hate their their f1 team and how dominant they are they they have been good for motorsports oh yeah they, they put a lot of money in in motorsports and a lot of money in in junior drivers as well so all of that i think is um is a really good thing that they that they've done and and um yeah the end of the day i think you know, talent, talent will find a way in, in a lot of cases, as long as the owner of said talent doesn't become too discouraged along the way and just kind of give up on it or, or become bitter, you know, sort of sort of the, the Tommy Burns, you know, there, there are people that are out there that sort of kind of as you, you talked about people that, you know, where you're saying you didn't ever burn a bridge, but there are people that certainly have. And, uh, and it's it's kind of easy to do when you're thinking about these scenarios where it, it just seems so unfair that someone can come in with money and, you know, take your seat away from you and, and, you know, stop that precious momentum. And that's what we always know in racing is that, you know, and that's, again, what's impressive about what you've done is you've kept your momentum going. You've kind of gone from strength to strength through motorsports. And that's really, really hard. I've certainly had my moments like that too, where I haven't been able to continue momentum and you sit idle for a couple of years. But that's the, you know, the business side of motorsports is a very, a very fickle, difficult thing. And it does take um, a huge amount of mental fortitude to kind of believe in yourself through through all of that. And um, and and so as a as a driver, how you operate outside of the car is so, so crucial and, you know, staying positive and, and just like we always say, it's like go to the racetrack, you know, take your gear with you someone's going to get sick if you're at a race, you know, and there you are with your gear, you know, there's an opportunity there. And it was like, Oh, that's such a roll of the dice. But I, I know people that do that and they get rides out of it. And every third or fourth time you manage to pull off one of those single rides, you have a really good result. And, uh, and they get a, a next year, they got a full ride with that team as a result of that. So you, 
you always hear those stories there and uh, you know, they're not just stories, they actually happen. So racing is, you know, if you, if you consider what it represents, like if you ask every, you know, kid on the planet and almost like you got to include the girls It used to be just the boys wanted to be race car drivers, but now we've got a lot of girls coming into motorsports as well, which is fantastic. But you know, it, it's, it's in the top list. Like I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fighter pilot. You know, I want to be a racing driver. Those you know, they're very hotly contested. And as we know, they're, they're very limited amount of racing seats around the world relative to all the kids from all the countries. And then, you know, most people watching this that are watching it in the U.S. can't even imagine, as we discussed, how incredibly important motorsports is in their daily lives in a lot of countries around the world where they, they think of it on, on par, you know, higher than what we would consider, you know, football or basketball or baseball in the U.S., um, and so you're competing against all of them, you know, and it's it's probably every year, 100,000 kids that actually kind of see it through and get in and do some something in a car and take a shot every year. And uh, and you're all competing for these very few seats at the very end of professional motorsports, you know, 19, 20 seats in Formula One, maybe 22 next year if Andretti gets the nod, you know, or in 26 when they come in. But, you know, that's what it all boils down to. So to sustain a career, I always... I talk about that like for the stunt stuff as well. It's so few people that are doing all the work in the stunt world. It's very hard to break in there when, you know, it's it's something that everyone wants to do. And yet there's not enough work to sustain 100,000 people doing it, you know. So it ends up sure. being so competitive at the end. And, and you can just get beaten down um, over time over this and just give up and, and do the smart thing, quote unquote, and go get a real job or something like that. Um, so yeah. it, it's, it's a tough one for sure. But damn it, it we is, know because we have those moments, yeah. you know, of, of getting yeah. to drive that car in that perfect moment, in that perfect situation. I remember watching you in Extreme E not that long ago, chase down and pass Sebastian Loeb, for God's sake. You know, I mean, th that, that kind of stuff yeah. makes all of it worthwhile. No, there's no doubt about that. And it's, I mean, if you look at the sports that, and I, I still dabble in, you know, a Pikes Peak and a Baja 1000 and, uh, you know, some one-off things. But if you, uh, the sports that I do are always, you know, I've always kind of gotten involved in small sports, gotten on top of that pyramid as quick as possible because it's a small sport and then worked to build the size of the pyramid. And you're already on top. So that worked with drifting. That worked with rallycross. Um, and you know maybe it'll work with EV racing. I've been pushing, but it's that that way you sort of are minimizing the risk you're talking about by going against the hundreds of thousands of people on the path more traveled. Yeah. Um, there's there's some so there. It, there's different ways to skin the cat, I guess is what yeah. it means, but there's um, for sure. It's a, uh, the stunt world, just like you said, is a nice parallel because it, it is something that is difficult to get into. And it's, it's uh, you know, in the stunt world, the first reason you get hired is because people want, they don't think they're going to have a problem staying in a town with you in a hotel for, 30 days <laughs> that's the first reason right because uh you know it's not going to drive me crazy second reason is you know you're not going to crash the car make a mistake stuff like that so it's, it's less about performance sometimes um but anyway it's a it, it's i'm i 
to, to one of your earlier statements, I feel super grateful and uh, um, very fortunate to have had kind of the variety. That's what's kept me interested. It was always a joke uh, with my family. I couldn't do anything for more than two years. It was amazing. I got through school. I did have a break in the middle, so I did two years at a time, but um, it, it, that's part of what's made it so fascinating and, and possible is just finding different avenues of motorsport, this wide world of motorsport um, to be a part of from TV shows and, and stunts and, and different types of racing to keep it all fresh and, and keep it, uh, you know, keep the obsession going. Yeah, exactly. As long as we can possibly keep it going. But I, I think it's one of those, it, this is one of those things where we are so obsessed by it that the, the day we have to, you know, theoretically hang up our helmets, it's going to be tough to fulfill that or to get that feeling, um, you know, anywhere else. And you know, you're still going to crave it. Um, so that's, you know, it is, it is quite an addiction. And I think, you know, you were, you were talking about yesterday, how, um, you know, you were when, on the prior podcast, we were talking about how, you know, you sort of felt like this driving thing, like how, how obsessed you are with it. And I feel it is sort of like this addiction where we like, and I've started to like, you know, it's sort of these higher and higher horsepower cars and like the, the, the minimum horsepower to get me off my couch and go to a racetrack has gone up over the years. And, and like, how fast yeah. is it? What kind of G will it pull? How much downforce does it have? You know, where I'm like, I'm like a drunk that like, you know, six pack don't do it no more. You know, I got it. So, so it takes like a much more, you know, coming from a guy that doesn't drink, that's funny. Right. But um, yeah, <laughs> that, that's the way I feel about driving. It's like now it, now it, it, I, I require an unlimited car at Pikes Peak, like just to, just to, you know, get excited about driving a car. That's how sad. That's I am. Funny. You know? But it, it, it is. That, what's that? Uh, that's funny. No, I, yeah. I think we're a little different in that where I, um, I feel like I've got something to learn in almost anything. Uh, you know, I overanalyze my, my grocery shopping cart drift from aisle three to four. I, I do that. And well. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so th there's, but there's a, you know, my thing that I focus on, I coach a guy in a Porsche cup car, but in reality I'm coaching myself and getting, you know, seat time and, and he does great, but um, brake release. That's, that's the thing that I tend to spend so much time on. And if I, when you play an off-road, you don't have to worry about that that much. Right. So you go pitch it in, you're sideways. All the brake markers are just visceral feelings of where you think you could brake. And, um, but then you get back into road racing. There's this methodical, uh, mesmerizing repetition to it that um, helps you split the hairs from lap to lap. And the brake release for me is something that is a muscle memory that I have to proactively reform in the first couple laps of being in a road race car after, you know, ice or dirt or whatever. And yeah. so that's, yeah, but I think I could do that in a, you know, a VW golf or in a Ferrari or whatever. I could, I could get something out of God the brake release. You. <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. Like at the brake release to me, I've yeah. described it as like the art of driving. Like if, if you, if you have yeah. a really nuanced brake release that you can vary, you can kind of make any car do anything, um, you know, and, and so that, that, that's an important point and certainly a big part of what I talk about in the book and so on and so forth. But yeah, I, again, it's just like to get my brain to engage, 
and get me like interested. And I will do the shopping cart thing. Like I literally, I think probably everyone watching this yes, is a shopping yeah. cart. Like it's almost a prerequisite <laughs> for sitting through this is you do that. Um, if you, yeah, if you, shop, if you, made, if you, you made really good, yeah. yeah, someone shops <laughs> for you, but if you're pushing the cart yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that, that's all important stuff, but yeah, it, I think, um, you know, driving again is, is such a cool thing where we're saying like it's that concentration level and you were mentioning that before where you were saying you know it, to get your head in the game and really have that focus and it takes pressure and all those things to kind of make all of that really happen that's kind of for me where i just don't drive the slow car so well because i'm just not that invested in it mm, um, yeah and, and, so, and so that's kind of the, the difference but you put me in something that's that's quick and puts a grin on my face when i mash the gas or turn the wheel because it you know it or hit the brake pedal, right. and I'm 100% on board and invested um, in ripping around in that car. And that's cool that you do some coaching. I, I don't think I knew that, that you were sneaking in some coaching on me without telling me. That's um, It's very little. It's very good. little. And this uh, this guy has had, coach, you know, everyone from uh, uh, Popest to uh, – uh, he's had several different coaches um, jump in with him and – and I think he just likes the variety, but we've, we've been doing it now for a while. And uh, I went out there one of the same days as Randy Popes mm -hmm. and, you know, his knowledge of, of the Porsche platform street and race car was just awesome. And I loved hearing his take on weaknesses and strengths of the rear suspension of that car and, and how to utilize it with the different, whether you're on, dot tires or slicks and right. and there's just so much detail you get into with road racing that is that's fascinating i think yeah um but, but you know coaching uh i don't have the coaching stomach like i had back in the ride and drive days uh after about seven and that poor cup car will just go forever right it'll just yeah. sit out there spinning laps for a freaking hour and i don't have that i've got <laughs> i've got a solid 11 12 hard laps with some somewhat unpredictable braking that w and then that's, you know, we should go and look at the chalkboard. Because <laughs> oh, you're up to a chalkboard now. That's yeah. Cause I need a break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's a, um, so, but no, it's a, it's very cool to do that side of it. That is, that is cool. And I, I think you, you gave me a little bit of a, an entryway here because you're talking about dirt and how it doesn't matter. And there's a, there's a neat conversation there. I'd love to hear your take on it. But from my Michelin stuff that I've done, and then, you know, mm -hmm. the Michelin BFG as well, um, I, I've had drilled into me from a very long time ago, but the difference between adhesion and traction. And they're two really different things. And, you know, a tire and a vehicle work under those two different conditions. And it is a completely different driving style as a result, to your point. And, and so just to make that clear to everyone out there, like a traction condition is when the surface is softer than the tire. So you're relying on on grip by digging into the surface and that's where the lugs help you and you know and, and that sort of thing or even when you talked about the ice tires where an ice spike is actually harder than ice um, and that will dig in and so you can drive it more like a traction situation versus a a regular tire on ice where you drive it like adhesion like you would drive a car on pavement and so whenever the surface itself is harder than the tire then the tire has to kind of grip the surface by adhering to it and it's the microbiologist in Tanner is going, ooh, molecular bonds. Um, but that's exactly what, what's happening. And so that's, 
you have adhesion where you're sticking to the surface because the surface is harder than the tire. And then you have traction where the tire is, is harder than the surface and you're trying to dig in and you're trying to actually throw material to gain thrust, whether it's cornering thrust. So you end up picking up the throttle super early. Like, a, you know, you watch the Supercross guy and he, he basically pitches it in and goes straight to full throttle because every bit of thrust you can get out of that motor, actually throwing pounds of material of, of dirt is what propels the dirt bike forward, you know, through and out of the corner. Right. And then in road racing with traction, it's completely the opposite where there's suddenly now this finesse of a brake release because we're trying to maintain a molecular bond with the surface. And that's where yeah. road racing is like, whoa, road racing is super nerdy and racing side-by-sides and dirt bikes and, and uh, rally cars is, is more like you get to, you get to drive like you dreamt of driving as a kid. It's more the drive it like you stole it almost, but there's an art to that as well. Don't get me wrong. Um, there are people that are really bad at it and there are people that are artists doing it, but it's a very yeah. different driving style. And I think that's really cool. What, what's your take on that? Being someone um, that's good at It's both? difficult. There's, there's, I mean, it's great to explore, but there have been challenges in my recent life. I'll, I'll let you know about that, I guess. But the, the way I always equate like road racing or static friction versus sliding friction is, is like if you had a piece of like wood, a block of wood on a two by four and you lift it up the two by four. And when you get to a certain angle where you're at the limit of the static friction and the block starts sliding, it's never going to stop again. It's going to just continue on because sliding friction is so much less. Yeah. So you'd have to bring that angle way down to get the block to stop um, before running off the side. And while there's some squirm and some movement and stuff like that and tread and a certain percent amount of slip that a tires mm -hmm. peaks at. Um, yeah. In, in dirt, it feels like you're using a, a lot more of the tire, not just the side of the lugs and the gap between the lugs, but you're using the sidewall of the tire. So that's yeah, why like you know, the yeah, the breaking into a corner with the the sidewall digging in um, is a benefit. Also, just to like a rudder, like you said, if you get understeer um, in dirt that's thick, you get away with it because the front tires kind of rudder their way through rather yeah. than in road racing. If you got understeer, it's just going to continue on until you hit the front nose against something yeah. um, unless you fix it. But there's a uh, there's such a visceral feel that is difficult to analyze on data that lateral braking force that um percent slip i mean it, and what i've learned from mclaren is and everything is very data driven there that the actual curve for the on gravel versus pay, pavement is very similar it's the same percentage of slip that you're looking for in a straight line acceleration right intrinsically it feels like i need to get this thing spinning to chuck the dirt like you said to dig down to something to get out of here um and depending on the surface which is infinite the surface yeah yeah sand versus just smooth polished granite versus yeah. whatever that's the thing is you can never just which is terrible for engineers especially coming from road racing yes. to say that this category for asphalt and this category for gravel because the gravel is this infinite gradient that goes from the sand dunes it's literally like of saudi yeah. arabia yeah. yeah to uh you know somewhere you know some grassy field in chile so there, there's in that in extreme e in that series we go through every type of gravel and um so it's hard to rely on data for a lot of that stuff and that makes debriefs difficult that makes um 
finding cause and effect, you know, difficult. And so it does rely a lot on the subjective feel of the driver, exactly. which of course is the opposite of an engineer's happy yes. place. Yes. And so there's, there's, there's always um, a challenge with that. So uh, when I raced with Scott uh, speed, he came in um, the first year with Volkswagen. Uh, he came in, to Rallycross, which was called GRC at the time. And we switched from a bias ply to a radial tire. And um, the bias ply tire was much more like, almost like a gravel tire feel where it, it didn't have a lot of side grip, but it had a lot of braking and accelerating grip, like a drag racing tire. Yeah. And so right. under braking for cornering, you would brake and then you would get the car rotated so it was pointed down the next straightaway as early as possible to use all that forward drive that it had. And that made for exciting racing. It always slid around. It looked like the tire cars were always squirming and sideways everywhere. But when it went to radial, suddenly you had to be in that narrow yeah. static friction window that we're talking about. And Scott was, of course, a master at that. And he came in and he drove around like a grandmother on the first event. And no offense to grandmothers out there, but just drove very, very slow and boring. And everybody's like, okay, this guy's definitely out of his wheelhouse. And Rallycross, and he was the quickest. And yeah. we're like, what the yeah. Sam hell is going on? And all these engineers the, went, hallelujah. <laughs> See, I've been yeah. trying to tell you that. Though. Finally, we can do stuff. Yeah. So the engineers <laughs> then got involved. And that was a big benefit of being with Andretti at that time because we were able to out-engineer a lot of the Swedish teams and, and European teams. And make those beetles work really well but his roll speed and his reliance on the front outside tire was so much more than mine i hated being on the verge of understeer yes from all that gravel driving um and uh then when it came to the gravel i was always quicker than he was so we worked well as a team um didn't get along great at the first year but uh, you know after that we we really gelled as a team and we could always make each other quicker by taking our strengths and, you know, re replacing the other person's strengths with our weaknesses and, and ended up making a, a kind of the quintessential type of team that you would want in a two car uh, rallycross program. And, and we're unbeaten for, for those six years, but it, it's, um, it, it's really, really hard to come from gravel and come from all this visceral, like, Test the grip. Now I can feel where the next braking zone is. The braking zone here feels like it's this. That looks a little wet. I'm going to brake a little earlier. Yeah, this, yeah. you know, all of this visceral stuff, yeah. millions of things coming at you to um, all of a sudden just focusing on four brake marks on the track and trying to fine tune that and that yeah. being your whole mental world. And I learned a lot from Scott doing that and had to go completely back to school on myself um to get out of a slump uh yeah. when we went to radial tire and it was a do that, or die i remember, you that, remember that yeah and, and scott of course came from um you know not only did, did he have that we were talking about him a few minutes ago going up through the red bull system and ending up in formula one in toro rosso back in the day but then he also did a very long stint it, it racing nascar um as well where you're really really focusing on the corner and being really efficient through the corner so it's they're almost it's i was talking about this with steve dinan in my prior podcast but they they really understand cornering to a very very high level 
And a lot of it initially was all subjective feel, but then they got their, their truckloads of engineers that rolled in when NASCAR sort of had its big boom in the 2000s. And, you know, you know, a bunch of guys walking around with English accents in every NASCAR pit because they were hiring Formula One guys to come over. And they started collecting all the data as well. And, and, you know, Scott was within that era of sort of, you know, under finally understanding sort of how that tire worked on, you know, a NASCAR oval and they were racing on short ovals, long ovals, you know, big ovals and also doing some road course stuff as well. So he had all of that experience kind of coming in all, you know, so he had like Formula One, which was, you know, is incredibly engineer driven. And then going into NASCAR, where you're really focused on corner speed, also incredibly engineering driven. And, and then he, he gets plunked. You know, you've had years with a bias fly tire, feeling pretty good about driving a GRC car. Suddenly they change the car, the tire in his favor. And here comes your new teammate. who's like ready to take advantage of that change. Yeah. His manager was also the owner of the series, which was always. A, so I, I, I had put up the mental stacks of like this may be the time when I should start doing something else or stop racing. Cause um, it seemed like a big hill to climb, but at the same time, it was kind of exciting to be on the back foot and mm-hmm. um, really have to study tape and study data. And I learned really for the first time I'd looked at squiggly lines for years but that was really the first time that I stared at those lines and really got, as soon as I put the helmet back on, I focused on that line that, and how I wanted it to look for the next data set and went out and was able to do it. Just, just you have to fail to get better. Yeah, That's yeah. the only fact is that you cannot get better just winning. And it, up to that point, I had been winning the championships and I'd always possibly had a better car, but I'd, I'd been with Ford for a long time and um, we brought kind of European cars over to the U S and, and then, uh, but yeah, that failure was one where I was like questioning everything. So the stakes were high enough to really go back to school on it and thankfully come out on the other side. And then by the yeah. end of it, I could out qualify out and it was a good That's battle right. we had um, and ended up winning the championship in 19. And uh, yeah, it, it it could put a could put a stamp on it at the end there, but it was it was it was an important recovery for me to decide whether I was going to go, you know, fly planes for a living or if I was going to, um, you know, stick with this racing thing. Yeah, and I think it's it's a testament to you. I, it's one of the things, you know, I, I talk about, you know, when people ask me about you is is that yeah, you just said it. You're like you had this one thing in the data you wanted to go out and work on. Um, the thing that you've done, and you're maybe going to blush when I, you know, I say all these nice things about you. So I, I apologize in advance, but I mean this wholeheartedly because I, you know, I have coached a lot of people, like a lot of people. Um, and uh, Tanner is like the unique guy to me that usually when you give someone something and you say, hey, I want you to go work on this thing, it throws off their rhythm and their timing to the point where they go slower for a while. That's the norm. It messes you up because now you're consciously thinking about something you were subconsciously doing and that throws off your timing and generally you won't drive as well. And it it takes a lot of fortitude actually to get through that phase and get to a point where you're actually really trying the new thing, giving it everything 
else to support it and it all comes together. And now you could finally see whether that new thing works or not. Um, right. And that was always the thing with you. You do that really fast, like really fast. Um, I could send you out. I remember sending you out with stuff that we would see on data and then just watching, like expecting you to go a second and a half slower that session and you didn't. And then you'd come in and give me feedback on that thing. And then the next session you'd go out and be faster still because now you incorporate it all into your method and into your Yeah, team. you came out to a couple to some of the I, that's right. I needed some road racing help, I thought. Yeah. And so I asked if you'd come out. Yeah. And and do some coaching from the outside. I think I just needed a fresh set of eyeballs because yeah, I was yeah. just discouraged um, by uh, this uncomfortable feeling that I had and the on those radial tires yeah I, yeah i i just hated losing i was tired of losing honestly yeah yeah and and yeah and yeah. that's but the thing is it's like you you dug really deep there and that's that's the the big the big thing that i've noticed with you is that sort of that ability to make progress so instead of like the you know the the uh, one step back and two step forward sort of thing you just generally can step forward um, it doesn't it doesn't really mess with you too much. You have that you have that cognitive bandwidth in the moment while you're out there in the car that you're able to kind of play um, with with what you're doing, where I spend my whole career coaching, trying to get people not to repeat the same mistake lap after lap after lap. That's more the norm. And then they come in and they're like hard on themselves. Like, I can't believe I keep doing that. I know not to do it. You told me not to do it. That's that's super normal. Like that's what normal people do. And so I think you don't maybe you don't realize it because it's you and that's the only thing you know, you know. I, I know what you I know what you mean. Cognitive bandwidth is a term that I definitely use a lot. And I and I see it in other drivers. I see it in Loeb. Um he he seems to me to be one of the most heads up drivers. I see him out there doing something and he's in the heat of the race. And then he realizes, wait a minute, I'm third now, which means I'm already qualified. So I can go ahead and give a gap here and try to get a fast time through here to get a good, you know, sector time on this one, which counts so for extra points. That you, yeah. Oh my gosh. He's so heads up with that kind of stuff. I see it from the outside, but the, you know, the cognitive bandwidth, when you when you use it up it's not it's for a lot of reasons some of it's not just skill or experience or whatever some of it's because you're overheated because you're maybe a little yeah. out of shape yeah you're already and starting with less it, it, yeah. yeah it's too hot in the car yeah. and uh, or you didn't uh, you haven't worked on your training enough to deal with heat that for rallycross that was one of the main things was dealing with heat sometimes it's 150 degrees in the car and we were on live TV, so we would sit there and they'd get us out to the line in the baking sun in Las Vegas and then park you for 15 minutes in the sun. In a, of course, I raced for Rockstar, so it was black as night. So that thing was so hot. And uh, yeah, that was the, that was, I could tell sometimes when I was overheated that I lost uh, a cognitive buffer. And it, it, that's, yeah, so there's a lot of reasons for that, but. Muscle memory is the easiest one yes. to, to gain cognitive buffer uh, and repetition. But yeah. but then just overall, um, you know, not stressing other parts of the human condition. Physiology. Uh, to a, psychology. Yeah, just yeah. allow for it to happen. Yeah. yeah. So so with all the um, that driving and again, so would you say that you you kind of, you know, you had that really nice little 
moment when you're talking about coaching and you're like started talking about break release in these very eloquent terms and how important it was made me very happy. Um, did was that the Scott Speed years where that sort of started to become a thing? Like, is that something you noticed yeah. with him? That's something yes, you noticed with 100%. him. Okay, 100. I knew I realized I'd been driving all-wheel drive cars and i remember from reading your forum inputs on like evo ms or some forum back <laughs> in the day that you're going to relate to this um i've been driving all-wheel drive understeering cars on gravel for so long that i just held the front brake as a safety as a safety handle kind of like when you're rappelling on a rope and keeping one hand on the rope you yeah. know i had one useless uh tenth or two of a second um uh, drag on the brake just Excellent. to make sure those front tires just stayed, be sure. yeah. yeah just yeah. to be sure but that was enough to cost time and i really needed to get off that freaking brake and it's the same in a cup car in the cup car um while it doesn't understeer and it's it's really nice nicely mannered and 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 everything and slicks man if you just get off that brake there's an extra bit of grip available for those front tires that aren't being used fighting those massive discs being dragged down now and so that extra bit of grip actually keeps the nose turning in and you're going eight miles an hour faster so it's like um getting the hell off the brake was uh, a good thing and then once you start getting off the brake early enough then it really seems to matter how you get off the brake because at that point you're on the edge enough at high enough speed that it's really easy to pop it into understeer if you come off too abruptly. Yes. Yeah. Um, so getting off early and getting off with a little bit of finesse um, and uh, was was the first feeling. And the Beetle was such a nice driving car. That thing sounds really weird to say. <laughs> but it's the <laughs> coolest car. First, folks. <laughs> I have driven virtually every Koenigsegg and Zonda and, and stuff up until, you know, the mid 2010 2012s you know from tv shows and i've driven so many amazing beautiful wonderful cars that freaking beetle kicks all of their asses and is it's i, I it's, sense a meme coming on yeah exactly <laughs> someone's yeah, gonna that, screenshot this that little freaking beast i'm telling you was the hairiest thing to drive uh in some cases because it just was so responsive but man it was it it in itself was just an overdriving machine you know it launched out of a out of the hole like a rocket was like uh you know two seconds zero to 60 always and were accused of running traction control in that car even though it was illegal always accused of running traction control and that. we just had the sweetest anti-lag system to where our rpm could drop into like the low 2000 range and it would still have full boost. So when you're doing a standstill launch with all-wheel drive, the lower RPM, you can still maintain boost and stop the wheel spinning and have them get that exactly. static friction and just drive away yeah. on full boost, the better it's going to be. The other cars were in the 35 to 4,000 RPM at the lowest that they could hold boost with that two-liter engine. So, And our anti-lag system was just so sweet. And it was, yeah, it was... it. it it was from WRC technology and it was, um, you know, expensive and all that kind of stuff. But that car out of the hole was great. It did everything you wanted driving wise. 
It landed like a freaking Baja truck. Some jumps we did in that series were 170 feet and yeah. just did them every single lap. And that thing would just extend its legs and just goosh and then sit right back on the ground yeah. again. Oh, it, it was a, it was a great machine to drive and it responded well to the nuances of road race technique that Scott brought to it yeah. and that, that I brought to it eventually. And the, um, and, and so to be so multi-talented like that, I always loved that car for that. Yeah, that was cool. I know you, it was funny because the car, that car, because it was a Beetle, got a lot of hate. But, but you, you always talked about like how special that thing always was. And uh, so it was, it's always a strange juxtaposition, I guess, is you got the, but hell, the, the results speak for themselves. Like you said, you guys dominated. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people, especially in the U.S., realize the resources and the commitment that manufacturer has in world rally racing. So WRC world rally championship racing, the, you know, Volkswagen motorsport, I don't know what the budget was, but it was probably about 150 million euros. And they went if with part of that went racing in the dirt, in the pavement, on the snow and ice and doing stuff that we never really got a chance to see in the U S unless you followed it. Right like formula one a couple of years ago and um the tech in those cars was unbelievable it had to be at you know formula one cylinder head pressures through the forest for three days not just you know one race right. and right. eating dust splashing through water i mean right. it, it, they were insanely cool machines the suspension uh yeah. you know i'd heard that each corner was up to like forty thousand dollars per damper when they you know were in their heyday the turbos were super light yeah uh yeah. you know magnesium turbos that were like a hundred thousand euros each and i mean just insane pushing yeah. the limits and you'd, you'd <laughs> go, like i'd take that beetle to these car shows and stuff back after the fact you know we had a, a cover over the the engine of that beetle for years and then once Volkswagen Motorsport closed, they were just like, man, you know, who cares? It's it's not there. You know, they're not going to use it anymore. They they closed. They crushed rally cars for the 2017 season that had never seen the light of day, but had already done 5,000 kilometers. Yes, of yeah, yeah. They crushed 2019 potential cars that were already built. But the um, but you'd go to these shows and they'd be like, oh, how much power is Amazon? It's got 600. And they'd be like, oh, my golf's got 600. But it's different because, you know, one is uh, the Volkswagen literally developed their own spark plugs to work at that cylinder head pressure in the in the Beetle, blended their own oil and uh, had so much commitment to making this thing. We ran we ran one of those engines in a test car just to see how long it would last. So every test we used the same engine and it lasted like three years of just wow. beating the crap out of it. We changed them every three races, which was only like three hours of racing, but they would go for three years. And it was uh, just an amazing, it was amazing to be a part of that, that era of Volkswagen and that era of kind of rally tech. Really yeah, love that. That's cool that you got to do that, and it gets it got to come over to the U.S. and we could kind of see that sort of tech, and it really was it was amazing to watch. Those cars were just astonishing. Did you say you have a Beetle? Do you have one of them? I do. Yeah, you I have one. Drive it at some point. 
Yeah, that would be amazing, actually. Oh my gosh, you would you'd love that thing. I mean, oh. after after all these years that you're telling me how amazing it drives better than anything you've ever driven, I I think I need a lap or two in that thing. Some it's a per it's a purpose built machine, so you'd need to be on a rally cross. Yeah, track. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to to get the the full as thing. Long as you don't have two, we're not racing. It'll be fine. <laughs> the the feeling of you would destroy uh, me. But I would try. <laughs> well. Well, I don't know. Yeah, probably. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's true. Wait, the, both parts that I would try, which is the dangerous part, and that you would destroy me. <laughs> the feeling, I mean, you are one of the few people that have felt coming up to a steep ramp at a high speed because of the Hot Wheels jump that we yes. talked about in the last podcast. But um, the feeling in those dirt cars of, of coming up to those things in a, in a, in a, in a car, in an off-road truck, it's one thing. But in a car, it is a strange feeling just to know you are just sending it. It just feels kind of like suicidal almost. Yeah. But that thing landed really well. I, I, I'm trying to remember who was it that came out. Maybe it was Andreas Bakarud came out and did like the nitro um, stuff just recently. And he hadn't been over a jump that big. So he did a post about like them coaxing him up to doing it, you know. And, you know, Andreas done a lot of stuff. And he was just like, uh, this is it's a long way. It's a big gap. Yep, they, they were big. I went and did the Utah round. Yeah, that was it. Night rally cross. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> we used to jump with the Beetle and with other cars. We jumped the gap jump, but that was actually it was a big jump, but it was a nice landing. Like yeah. Travis designed it. it. He he like in the first drivers meeting the first year, I think it was five six years ago that they built that. He was just like, look, anybody want to lend me the keys to your rental car? I'll go jump in your rental car. Anybody can do this jump. It's going to be easy. It's perfect. And it was. It's a cake yeah. where you sometimes you don't even feel the landing. But there was a tabletop this year that was, I don't know, 140-foot tabletop that was super steep, like really high elevation. That's a problem. Yeah. Not just yeah. not just a floater. Yeah. And so then yeah. you start to have to really, you know, the my weakness in all this kind of racing has always been the dirt bike guys can just sort of feel the speed that they need to hit in order to land in exactly the right spot. And I do pretty well with landing in the right spot, knock on wood, but I have to really think about it. I have to come up with the gear. I got to think about exactly the sound and everything. And if with an electric car, that's pretty difficult. Um, so it's more a timing thing. It's like a, how good was my exit out of that last corner yeah. to estimate how fast you're yeah. going and then how much brake yeah. you add and then back to the gas to, to get the nose up. And yeah. uh, it's, it, you know, the dirt bike guys always had an advantage doing that, but man, it was a, um, that car that Andreas Erickson, my old teammate and my own old team owner when I was with Ford, mm -hmm. um, he developed and built that car. It's really amazing how it takes the the jumps. I mean, he built it really for Travis tracks for sure. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really, really cool stuff. So you were talking about like Scott sort of gave you this, this first eye-opening thing about brake release. You were talking about just, you know, not dragging the brake in too far. And you had that moment where you pull the brake in too far and you're almost like pausing for a second where you're like, you should be going, um, which you sort of alluded to and, uh, and just basically trailing the brake in and having a, a really sort of, nice granular release but doing it as early as you can you don't want to understeer but you also you don't want to overslow the car right i mean that was the basic thing and you need to be getting back to throttle and get the car pointed efficiently so that's a cool very cool lesson very cool road racing lesson um and it's and, and you're still using it with the guy you're coaching today uh 
you also, you said you got to ride with Colin McRae. Did you learn anything riding with Colin? Anything there that, that Colin, you Colin, uh, you know, and I had been rally racing uh, for quite a while. I mean, five years when I got in the car with Colin. Five years, three years, maybe when I got in the car with Colin. But I, I, I had, it, it, we were on a team. So we had about a two and a half mile test stretch uh, up north of LA where we were shaking down the Vermont sports cars, Subarus. And Colin was Colin's first time in the cars, all of our first time, both of our first time in the car, Travis and Ken had been driving the car for the season. But the point is, is that it was a road that I knew every inch of because I had just done 10 laps in the same car. Um, he rolled his window down at one point. This is how rudimentary rally cars were then, as you could roll the window down. And he's like, hey, so, uh, you know, I think the, the ALS system is a little bit weak. Have you, what do you think? And, and, you know, I didn't even know what ALS stood for. I've been <laughs> driving a production GT car. It, this thing just seemed faster, you know, so I didn't know what it was. But I was like, yeah, that sounds, sounds right. And he's like, yeah, hop in. Fancy like system, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I jumped in and knowing the road and knowing where I was braking, knowing where, where I was carrying speed and everything, and then watching where what he did, it's easy to say, oh, he braked later. He carried more speed into corners and stuff like that. And that wasn't really the case. I, I was carrying a lot of speed in the turns. But what he did is he used a third dimension that I didn't use. So he would wait until the car was compressed before he would brake. And all too often in rallying, there's a crest yeah. that you need to slow down for. There's a crest into something. And he would come flat out way into the brake zone for that particular corner. And because the crest had a compression on it, he would wait and then use the compression yes, and he yeah. would get double the brake force, like down oh, force. Yeah. And then just pop over the crest and he'd be at the right speed and then go. And it was the same with turning too. Sometimes he would turn into a corner way too fast and we and i knew we were off but it did have a, a bit of a dip to it a, in the middle and he would kind of be turned in a little bit straight and then he would get some angle and then bite into that dip and use that compression to get a bunch of steering done all at once yeah and that third dimension was so eye-opening for me i literally in those couple runs with him i got uh probably i estimated at the time like a half a second to a second a mile faster in my own driving, which in rally terms is a lot over a weekend. Yeah. That's a that's a big big difference, just from from adding into the equation of that visceral soup that we were talking about before, yeah. adding into the equation and prioritizing those dips to to gain grip. It was, and that's a simple thing to talk about. Really difficult at 100 miles an hour to wait to hit the brakes and trust yeah. that and extra trust grip. It. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, um, yeah, that, that was a great experience. And, uh, you know, then I took him, took him out to, to go drifting that same trip, which we talked about a little bit, yeah. which was really fun to put him in my, in my world at that time. Cause that's what I was doing full time was drift. But, um, yeah, so it was so sad when he passed away, he did a couple, uh, races. We, he, he came to the rockstar party, 
um, which was the only time Rockstar did an X Games party and the only time I ever met the owner of Rockstar in 18 years of uh, <laughs> being he came out of his, uh, his mountaintop, uh, you know, mansion in the Alps, you know, kind exactly. Of I think he came off the yacht actually. Yeah. And the, um, it was a, uh, yeah, it was really cool. He, 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 I, I kind of hosted him for a little while. Uh, I'm cruising around the States there for that, for that. I, re- that I remember that happening and he was a, he was a total hero of mine, my whole life. And, and, um, so I was, that, that was one of those things where I never did meet him. And uh, so I, it's amazing. I'm super happy that's, you know, that you got to spend that time with him. Um, Cause he, he was just such a huge influence on so many people. Um, so, I mean, I don't think he, he didn't realize legend, absolute legend. He did not. He knew, you know, that he made a, li- I'm not speaking for him or anything, but I got the impression that, you know, he, he was a business guy. He was making a living doing the, doing racing and, and always wanted to push and do the next thing. He always traveled with a business manager everywhere. And, um, but I don't know if he even knew what an, what an impact he had on, on, on a generation. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I'm a, sure that's the case. Really, I, he was too busy just being awesome him and just, you know, yeah. every time he got in a car, just driving. And that it was, you know, I think with anyone like that, and you talked about it too, you were saying how you just did all of this because it was fun, you know, and, yeah. and you just, you do it for a feeling, right? You do it for what it, what it, how it makes you feel. And I think everything else that happens is, first of all, obviously it's external, but it, it also doesn't have anything to do with that feeling. That feeling is just something intimate between you and the car in that moment. And, um, and if there are any accolades you happen to get for it, then, well, that's kind of cool, but you know, we're sort of selfish and in it for us, for that feeling. hundred um, percent. And the fact yeah. somebody pays you to, to go do and that is mind blowing. Yeah. It always feels like you're cheating the system somehow, you know, and it's, somehow. And, and some people are better at, at monetizing that than others. I mean, Ken was a marketing genius yeah. and great behind the wheel was actually amazing in a rally car. And, um, but, and I actually had him out to steamboat, he and his wife, Lucy, and coached him on the ice driving track, uh, after a few years after I'd moved away from here, um, because he was getting into rally, he got out of the shoe business. And, and so I, I brought him out to that. He didn't really like the ice driving. It was like too patient. Wasn't really a thing. He didn't really like that. So then I did this, uh, actually did this, this Gymkhana event. Um, I was doing time attack for this this Subaru tuner named Crawford. And I did I a Gymkhana against you in that car. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? That's right. You're in the Evo, right? I was in the AMS car. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he, uh, j- one of the formula drift judges did a Gymkhana event, which at that time was really, you know, an autocross type event. And, uh, I invited Ken out to try that Crawford Subaru there because I thought he'd like it. It had, you know, you'd have to go around a cone, you'd do stuff like that. And there's a lot of sliding and fun. And then he literally asked, Hey, can I just rent this place? This was El Toro where you and I've worked many times. Yeah. And, uh, can I just rent this place and rent this car? And just like, I think it'd be cool to go a hundred miles an hour and like yank the handbrake and just film it and just see what it's like, you know? And I was like, yeah, seems like a dumb idea, but okay. No, I <laughs> yeah, will never go anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, yeah, no problem. And he did, and he, you know, made the first Jim Connor video and sent me a cut 
a few weeks before he released it. And I, I was just like, I, I, he sent that email back to me actually uh, with within the last year, year and a half. And he said, um, cause he had found that old email and That's it was, so and I wrote him, I wrote him back, said, I, you've just completely changed the way that we have to market ourselves as drivers. Yeah. And he sent that email back because he's like, yeah, you are, you're right. That's now, now we all have to do these videos. And, and he was the, he was the master at taking this very cool industry and, and finding his own way by monetizing marketing, um, making an irresistible value uh, to companies so that uh, they didn't really have a choice whether they're going to sponsor or not. They had to, because then otherwise somebody else would. Yeah. I think he was really good. Like, I think we all kind of get in our heads a little bit and we, we get a little bit elitist in a way about driving and how we think about driving. And we think of it, you know, because we're we're working on it from such a high level where we're talking about the nuance of a brake release and the, the vertical aspect of taking advantage of, of this compression and making sure you turn the wheel more there. And, you know, like, you know, you learn from Colin and all these things. And they're they're great concepts. And it's what I wrote my book based on the difference between good and great, you know, because I, I mean, I, I've evolved to a point in driving where that's the stuff that interests me. But but to the regular person that clicks on youtube to see a car slide around you know that that's that's i don't even think about that stuff that was ken's genius was he he went out and he did stuff that that every single person that enjoyed watching a car would enjoy watching these jim connor videos because even through us the elite snobby road racer guys or whatever you however you want to gauge us we thought those videos were amazing and every one of us kicked ourselves going, why didn't we think of that? And, and the reason we didn't think yeah. of it was because, because Ken, he just had that vision, like what we're doing, like it's like seeing splitting hairs between you and Scott on a rally cross lap. That's one tenth of a second different. It's something literally almost only we can appreciate, <laughs> but, but Ken was like not thinking like that at all. He's not trying to perfect his game as a driver. He was trying to create entertainment. That that the masses would would, you know, their eyes would be out on stocks when they saw these cars sliding around and doing silly things like yeah. a guy on a Segway or you know whatever it was or hanging a wheel off. And yeah. that's no, he, he had a much bigger vision for sure. Much and there's a vision, yeah. thing, the thing that it, you probably might remember after those videos when they'd get released, especially the first one, is that you would get forwarded links weeks later from people that you knew were not into cars at all. Yes. And that would send that to you. And so it broadened the enthusiast world, which that was the light bulb for me. It was like, man, we need, we need more Ken's because yeah. uh, otherwise the enthusiasm for the craft of driving racing for a 10th of a second or just loving a windy road, whatever yeah. the enthusiasm for that craft is going to die. Yeah. If we don't increase the size of those that enthusiast market, rather than just continuing to let it die out as manufacturers pull out a motorsport left and right. Yeah, and Top Gear did the same thing. It had a very broad appeal that, you know, everyone always talks about. Like, you know, I was super into cars, but my lo- my wife loved watching it too, or, you know, exactly. or, or vice versa, you know. And it, and it was yeah. that, that very broad appeal because it was just good entertainment that happened to include cars. And yeah. um, and even even Drive to Survive has made a massive difference on Formula One, where it was oh, yeah. an afterthought in this country. And, and uh, we're going to have three F1 races in the U.S. this year. 
you know, and, and everyone's into Formula One now. And it's a very dramatized, simplified, dumbed down, you know, as I, again, speaking as this person that's been in motorsports my whole life, it's hard for me to watch that show with its fake tire noises and things like that, that they add in uh, and, and drama that we, we know because we follow the sport isn't actually there, um, you know, but, but, you know, there's no denying it's, it's mass appeal. And, oh my gosh! It's turned uh, the value of a Formula One team into a billion a plus. Billion dollars. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Where it used to be, you know, two hundred million, and now it, it, it at best. And yeah. so that's like, um, it's amazing. I love that it did high. It does highlight again what race fans would already know, but doesn't exist in the U.S. Um, much it highlights the competition in between teammates and uh, that being pretty much the main competition. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're actually winning the races outright, that's the competition is your team. Yes. Yeah. And so, and I do, I do love that. And, and because it's already such a big scale, you know, the, the paddocks and, and everybody's already got the kit that is new every single day of the year. And it's, uh, you know, it's so beautiful, the formula one presence. And it's always like, literally you can set your watch by the way, the, the, the time that the, the parade lap starts, like everything is so professional that exposing it to a market like the U S that's just like, wow, this looks so like, put together and it's so competitive and these guys are so fit and the stakes are so high yeah. and never yeah. knew that any, that kind of level even existed. It's super cool. I, I mean, so I'm a big fan that it's built up formula one. I'm a big fan that McLaren is doing so well now also. Yes, of course. And they've had a real resurgence basically starting in Silverstone this, this year where the car just, they brought a bunch of updates and man, have they worked and uh, Piastri has been a great investment as a driver. He's certainly, you know, surprising, not really surprised. I guess he's always been a, a, a real talent. So everyone knew, but he's, you know, the fact that he's up there with Lando, um, pretty close to Lando and out qualified him in the last race. And it's, it's really, really oh, impressive. And nicest guy. Like I, he was a, we shared a changing trailer for Goodwood and <laughs> nicest dude, you know, and uh, just, uh, I think he's just sort of, I didn't talk to him that much about his history, but he's just sort of won everything. Yeah. And it, it, I think, you know, there was a big push to get him in the team, obviously from Zach. So it's certainly paying off. It's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really cool. So, so lots and lots of things about, you know, that's, I think it's cool that we sort of talked about Ken and, and uh, the Jim Connor stuff and, and all of that. And because it is, it is, you know, motorsports is like that. Driving is like that. It's, it's done at many, many levels from people that just go out and do an autocross or a track day, um, you know, and, and then all the way up, you know, to the professional level that you've spent your life in. I, you know, kind of spent my life either coaching or racing in that same at that same level, trying to at least. And and um, that's the cool thing, I think, about it. You know, the, the thing that unifies us all about it and you having your moments with Colin McRae and, um, you know, it, was there anything um you also did we already talk about um you rode with sebastian loeb as well uh was there anything i, I rode with him in at race of champions mm-hmm. what i got from him was the same thing that i think now about him as we did talk a little bit about his yeah. head 
his his headspace i think is very strategic and there's um so when i rode with them there was there were three laps that he got to do in the wrc ford focus while he was actually competing in a citroen so it was his first time getting in the focus right. which was interesting and of course the engineers and and he was you know nine-time champion the engineers in the ford immediately swarmed him like oh what do you think blah 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 and he's they like didn't come oh, to you. <laughs> yeah, so, so sorry english you know like he pretended <laughs> like he didn't speak english and walked away ridiculous but the um in the laps though every single lap was completely different and of course he didn't know me from adam he probably didn't even know i was competing with him that weekend but every single lap was um very different he did one lap completely straight driving everything one lap sliding everything and then one lap kind of maybe sliding braking with clean exits uh-huh. and uh, cool. and then somebody in, and then he had somebody in the stands giving him sector times on that stuff there was no radio or anything in the car so just just to give three data yeah. sets that were different and the discipline each lap to do it exactly to the plan um is i mean i start out some laps okay this one i'm not going to slide much and then maybe three to four corners in like one <laughs> slide and you're like ah fuck it and he's like you know go <laughs> that's my it. guy goes faster yeah that's my guy but yeah so, <laughs> so that much discipline is uh it, it, it was admirable that's that's what i got from Lowe. he's he's heads up that's that's really cool and i think again he he was a bit of a game changer when he came into rally where he drove a lot tidier um, he wasn't a big, dramatic, Colin type of guy. Uh, he was sort of the opposite. He was like the, you know, pros, pros, you know, like Villeneuve, like sliding Formula One cars around and, you know, and you had other yeah. guys that were more tidy. And it was a bit more tidy. He still slid the car around, but not nearly as much. And it was never opposite lock, you know, kind of thing. And, and he's the same. Low. Yeah, he came from Tarmac Specialty grounds you know so i think in the races that he had done front wheel drive tarmac that was what he had done so it was really about roll speed keeping it straight um now i think the cars have so much downforce and 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 who knows what citroen had going on but they probably were really starting to generate some good downforce then and um and, and obviously all that downforce works a lot better when you're not sideways so it's uh, you know, he may have been able to sort of tap into some of that stuff um, on the way in better than others. But he but he also exposed I know noticing the extreme E truck, even he exposes himself to less drama because there are little bumps and rocks and stuff. and You can't see every single one of them. And the more sideways you are, the more sidewall you basically present yes. to the, to the obstacle, um, the more, uh, you know, yaw rebound you basically expose yourself to and uh and more steering input you need because yeah. of that so and more reacting you need which uh as you know we've talked about a lot you want to you know anticipating is what it's about about not yeah. reacting what's um it, it, when you get to an extreme e car where the steering rack is quite slow um it's it's low center of gravity for how high it is off the ground because the yeah. way the batteries are set when it does get up in the air it goes quick so you, you like you a don't hobie have, cat like a hobie cat there you go 
<laughs> you don't, and you don't have much response because the rack is so slow. So um, you end up finding yourself really not you, you when you're sliding. You know that you're exposing your belly, basically. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Actually, I yeah. I, I like I like that that you brought that up, and I think that that's a that's a pretty clever approach. And again, the temptation of of sort of like you said, you get three corners in, and you're like, "Whoa!" Yeah. And, and that becomes like the default, right? That that becomes yeah. how you drive the car, and you can drive the car like that. But like you said, you there's so much more exposure. You, instead of having two tires leaving tracks, you've got four leaving tracks now. And so those little rocks, like you're talking about, you're basically doubling your chances of catching something, uh, and and you know not just rolling, but you could also obviously cut a tire. You could. Um, do suspension damage, you know, without, you know, without the truck ever going over. So, you know, right. all of that is, that's, that's really, I think that's a super clever observation that you have. Have you, have you taken that to heart a little bit? Are you able to make it past three corners now? <laughs> or Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. And the yeah. steering is a little bit better, but it almost comes down to the steering rate, like in stunt cars, in um rally cars especially when you're on the snow where there is a lot of sliding around mm -hmm. all that you notice when you get in the off-road trucks the steering racks are so fast it's yeah. just absurd yeah but then you're going 120 miles an hour over whoops and bumps and the truck's kicking sideways all over the place and you're like i can't believe what this truck is doing and in reality it's like notice how little you have to do you just sit there yes. like this and you fix yeah. everything so quick yeah. And so when you have slow racks, it just makes the exposure to drama so the much higher. That you're out there, yeah, exposed is longer, exactly. And also, yeah. I mean, that that goes directly also. It's not just a slow rack, but it's also your anticipation and therefore your hand speed for yeah. those for those situations as well, where you know, you look at like speaking of a McLaren driver, but like Pato Award and IndyCar is sort of known for having these ultra quick hands because IndyCars are a little bit overpowered, especially, which is a great thing, uh, for the amount of downforce they have and the, the tires that they have, which degrade fairly quickly. And so they spend a lot of time with those little quick, you know, wrist flick yep. moments where you're trying to power down out of an exit or you're charging into an entry and you're trying to have the car completely balanced, trying to manage that slip angle and keep it at the peak and not snapping into an oversteer moment. And when it does, but, you know, flirting with the limit inevitably you will have those moments. So that super quick rack and those super fast hands are the things that earn yeah. money that are going to see you at the end of the race. What bites you with a slower rack, you can have fast hands sometimes and make up for it. But what bites you is that the rack to here, you've got a yeah, whole nother you got to go hand over hand. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so exactly. if, you know, in a formula car, when you're always here and yeah. you're not ever letting it go to grab the other side kind of a thing, um, that's that's got to be kind of your limiting factor is 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 Absolutely. when you get it. once you start in in you know while you're on the ice and snow and and learning driver's ed in switzerland or whatever and you, you shuffle the wheel and you have little crab hands and you shuffle and this is what we used to teach at the ice driving school is but <laughs> when you're getting bucked at 100 miles an hour there's you don't really have the time for a big shuffle. No you you can watch the video later and you can see, oh my God, okay, I, I threw the wheel at it and then I brought it back. And I, <laughs> but you know, you're not thinking about all that kind of stuff. And so when it goes beyond just arm to arm, 
Yeah, I think that's, that's where the quick the quick rack's super helpful there. When you, I mean, yeah. that's the way I set up my Pikes Peak car. I want full lock in the tightest hairpin. So like George's or one of those really tight hairpins in the W's, where basically I, I want to just be at 180. I don't want to go hand over hand. Yeah. And, yeah, Radford wasn't like that either. The Radford had, you know, like the the two little handles as the steering yeah. wheel, but it was like two and a half locks. So you're doing so the weirdest grabs here. ever, yeah. right? Yeah, you're over here and you're and you're like trying to keep track of the upshift side. You're like, okay, the upshift yeah, side's over exactly. here. You're tracking out. And you're like, burr, burr, and you're like, you're climb and, and it, by the way, super easy when you're when you're hand over hand to pull the wrong one. <laughs> like, super. yeah, oh, you gotta really you gotta think about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those, but those are, I mean, that's really practical advice, right? Where, and, and, you know, all of that, of course, the, the, the foundation, the, the bedrock, the pillar, as it were, of driving that we're alluding to when you talk about having fast hands is this is, this is car control stuff. This is stuff you learn, you know, Tanner at the ice track, Tanner doing rally driving, all the things he's done in the stunt world. But, you know, that, that goes back. If we were to tie this into driving technique. You, you get really fast hands because you have a really good seat of the pants where you can feel the yaw in the car and you're on top of the car moving. Like you're on top of it. You're not reacting. You're not behind. Um, you're not putting in too little, too late, too slow and not and forgetting to lift off the gas or make that adjustment. But all that stuff happens in, in literal milliseconds, right? Literal milliseconds. And like you said, you got to watch your video to remember all the times that it happened. Because you're just doing that as a matter of course in how to drive the car. And even in road racing, when we're talking about being traction versus or, or adhesion versus traction, where we're trying to keep it in a very narrow slip angle, we're doing exactly the same thing. We're just doing it very, very minutely with, yeah. without any big stuff going on, where it's more like instead of a instead of a correction, it's a pause on turn in. That was a little oversteer moment that made you stop slowing because the rear suddenly turned that little bit that you were going to do, you know, and, and that's how like finally it evolves into. Um, and, and that's kind of where it gets to be super cool where you're doing it all. And I say that instead of correcting, you're just adjusting and adjusting is a natural byproduct of having a vehicle at its limit um, because you never know because it is so subjective in the moment, you know, that's the, I also like uh, take your take on this, but you know, the engineers and all that are like, you know, this is ideal and this is what we want you to do. And, but when you go out and drive the car, you don't have squiggly lines when you're driving the car, you only have your subjective feel. And then your experience tells you what the future might be like, what the next corner might be like. And in the moment, it's your subjective feel of what's actually happening versus what you thought was going to happen. And so we're, we're such feel animals when it comes to that. So we're always sort of, poking the tiger a little bit to know where the limit is to make sure we're not undershooting, you know, because if we assume the limit was somewhere and we found out, you know, we lose this race and then you go back and look at the data and you're like, well, really, I never went above 95% of what the tires could do. You know, like you, you would, you, you wouldn't belong in, in professional motorsports if you did that. So you're always like at the limit balancing the car doing the brake releases you're talking about taking advantage of the little bits of grip that colin mcray taught you um putting power down as efficiently as possible steering as little as you can get away with keeping your minimum speeds as high as you can like that's the meat and potatoes of what we do and then having that experience to be very accurate in what you are perceiving the next corner is going to be like and how it actually does turn out 
So I said, yeah, there's that, what are your thoughts on that? You did. I, for me, just like you remember, even from the Hot Wheels jump, I do the same thing in road racing where I just try to simplify what I really have to do. So it's yeah. like with the Hot Wheels jump, you know, I, the perfect scenario was you just stayed full throttle, right? Over the jump. Didn't turn out like that, but that was yeah. the idea was let's set the suspension up. So all you have to do is be, a, a you know, a monkey on the holding a wheel and just keep your foot to the floor and that's it. Yeah. And, and, and that's how I, every stunt I try to do, I try to just take the human out of it. And there's um, for road racing, I would try, and this may sound really rudimentary to you, but I would just try to find four things, maybe three on the track breaking points there's going to be a couple things that are counterintuitive a couple turns a couple little crusts of you know concrete that you need to get a piece of with the inside tire or something like that that are always going to be there but if i just find three or four break points like actual markers for me when i go to road racing that's what i need to start with i start with those things and um then the rest of the track the puzzle pieces sort of fall into place. Yeah, yeah. If if I'm getting my braking right and I'm nice and late and I'm getting off the brakes and it, and it, and it feels like it's at the limit, the rest of the track rolls right into yes. itself. Kind of. A That's thing. perfect. And it's about finding those four things, those cracks adjusting by a couple feet here and here. So lap to lap, I'm guilty of this because I um, probably because of my, you know, non-professional rally, low level drift kind of beginnings um, where I've been on teams where I thought, okay, I need to have good feedback. Like I need, and I've had teammates on the other side where I've been the experienced one and I've watched them just talk shit about stuff that made no sense just because I knew they just needed to say something in the debrief or they thought they were going to be judged as not being able to feel very well. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm guilty of being in the car as a test driver. And the whole time I'm like, Oh, did I get understeer there? Oh, maybe I did. I'm mean, let's see. I wonder why I did that. And Oh, this is this, you know, and like thinking about all the stuff that we're going to talk about after the session. Yeah. yeah. Instead of just, Focusing on a couple simple things, a couple breaking points, going as fast as I can, learning the million bits of input through the rest of the track and pushing, pushing. And then after the fact, let yourself have the, the, the moment to rewind after the fact and go through it and understand while you're driving, you don't have to sit there and collect data points and be like, okay, that's three things I got to remember to say, you know, cause then you're just distracted. So yes. for me, I, I narrow it down to simple things. Then if I watch video afterwards, it's amazing how you pick up every single bump and everything with video. I always call it like traumatic amnesia, which is a thing um, that helps save the brain from kind of an overload. Uh, it, when it experiences trauma, it just forgets about it. Sure. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or pain. Like if, if it's too traumatic, it doesn't hurt. You know, yeah, kind of thing. it just shuts it so, all off. So I think there's so much going on around a racetrack. Sometimes you do have that, but when you relive it through a video, it's unbelievable how much you remember. Oh, at this point it did this or on yeah. lap three right here, you'll notice that I got a little hiccup on the motor there. So they go back and they find that in the data. 
Um, you know, in rally cars, the stages are so long that they put a button on the steering wheel. And when you had something happen that you wanted to talk about, you just push the button and it would put a tick in the data. And once you push the button, it was amazing how free your brain was from yeah. having to remember it. And I so you that. could just move right on to the next corner. Yeah. yeah. But I think people are really guilty, especially people getting going in their racing. They're really guilty of being test drivers all the time and, um, and not just running it and then reviewing later to figure out what could the car, what could you change about the car that would make it faster, period. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, I, that's great advice because at the end of the day, like we're saying, we're kind of feel animals, you know, once we're in the yeah. car and, and, you know, you mentioned, and I brought up, and obviously I talk a lot about flow and flow is not going to happen. Um, if, if you're right. just too busy, it's sort of yeah. on a cognitive level. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever read this, but I recently read it where I was doing some research on, on just consciousness. Cause I was just curious about that for a blog I was writing about driving that's available on the optimumdrive.com website, by the way. And, um, and I was thinking about, you know, this consciousness thing. So it turns out 95% of your cognitive bandwidth is subconscious. And only 5% is that one thing you can think about while you're conscious. Like you're, so, so, wow. so when you're, you know, when you're, when I was talking about your, instead of the normal person that does one step forward and two steps back, you were able to right. always kind of go forward. That's because you were very good at not messing up your subconscious flow that was happening. You just mm -hmm. let it happen. And you were very good at just keeping that one little thing that we talked about that you were going to work on and, and keeping that there in your conscious 5% and then just integrating it into what you're already doing. That, Like I said, that's super unusual. Usually it breaks people out of flow right away um, to, to introduce mm -hmm. that. And that's kind of your whole point to what you were saying. It's like, and, and absolutely, and that's something that's very commonly said. I didn't coin the phrase, but I think it's accurate. And you described it. The corner starts at the break application. And so if you get if you get the brake application right, if it's the right level at the right place where you're carrying enough speed in the corner where the car, as you say, is at the limit. And the reason it needs to be at the limit is because all the stuff you need to do to the car is only based on it being at the limit. So if you're going too slow, the technique suddenly just doesn't matter anymore. You're just going too slow and you're yep. you basically wasted the corner. You know, so mm -hmm. so all of that that has to happen where you, you know, you, you're, you're bleeding that speed in the brake zone and you're trying to reach that perfect turn in point. Uh, and that turn in point needs to happen at the, at the right speed. And the car needs to be in the right position. It needs to, you need to turn it at the right rate, you know, so you have the right amount of rotation in the vehicle or not. And then what is the balance of the vehicle at that particular moment too? Are you still on the brake? Are you off the brake? Cause it's a high speed corner. Are you dragging a bunch of brake in because you're afraid of a bunch of understeer that's about to happen if you didn't. Um, you know, all of those things. And, and you know, as I described them, it's like, that's super complicated. You said a thousand things. Last week, um, when I had Steve Dynan on, he said, he said, racing, re the reason no one ever really goes fast in racing is because they always ask, what's the one thing that I can do to go faster? And he says, it's always a thousand things worth a thousandth of a second. And no one's willing yeah. to do that. And I'm like, damn, yeah. I'm like, that's, that's exactly it. It's that profound. Mm -hmm. But if there are so many things and it's just three simple variables from three simple controls where we're talking about a steering wheel, we're talking about a brake pedal and a gas pedal. But within them, there's just infinite variety of combination to, to optimize the car for that particular moment in that particular corner 
Um, and like you said, what are we looking for? We're looking for balance that keeps our minimum rolling speed through the corner. It turns the car efficiently. It squares up the exit, lets us get to power, you know, and, and takes advantage of the natural terrain, as you said, that's there uh, on the corner. You know, all of that stuff. I think it's just um, it's a really cool thing. And I think for people that are trying to wrap their heads around it, um, it is, you know, you've got to be really patient with yourself. You've got to be super rational all the time. It's not good to be an optimist while you're racing because you do dumb things. <laughs> or buying a house. Or, yeah, it's, there's a lot of things where you got to look for the problems. Yeah. yeah, and you can't be a pessimist <laughs> because you'll never try stuff, you know. So you have to be a realist, like, to do this. And you have to be really honest with yourself. And 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 you have to build a good foundation in that you have good car control and you have good basic technique. And then that way, your decision-making is actually pretty rational. Because if there's any chink in your armor as far as, you know, not not understanding a particular foundational concept, then all your decision making would be flawed, you know, and so you could you could be the most rational person in the world. But if your car control isn't good, you're never going to be that quick. And then you also have to, you know, to I wanted to bring this up earlier, but I I thought of it just now. But when you were saying you get three corners in and you just want to slide the car again, I'm smiling so broadly because Oh my God, that's all of us. <laughs> like, we, yeah. like the, the discipline to not do that is really, really hard. Um, and, yeah. and it's kind of the dark side where car control can be, if, if you feel like it's impossible for you to lose control of a car and you can get to that point. I feel like that a lot of times driving a lot of cars, like this car telegraphs so well and the steering rack is fast enough and I'm on my on point well enough that I can just huck this thing about and not even worry about it, you know? Um, but there's a downside to that because you probably won't that little bit of fear of like, I could lose it keeps you tidy. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and then that kind of helps you snap out of the, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to slide this thing everywhere. Cause it's the most fun thing right. to do. Um, though it's right. not potentially the most productive thing to do unless we're in formula D, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I think those are all, I think those are all kind of cool little lessons. And uh, I love you, man. You've had such great input. Who, who else? So who else can you think of? Did did you ever ride with um, with Michael Schumacher? Did you ever ride with Vettel? Um, anyone else or, or watch them? Anything you've gleaned from from their way they approach things or anyone else? I mean, I got schooled. Well, Vettel and Michael were on a team. They were on the German team for Race of Champions. And uh, I had beaten Michael in the buggies. I was in the I'd beaten Vettel in the Audi R8 GT car, which was like a rear wheel drive car. Cool. And, and then we, then we went against each other again in different cars. And this time it was in the buggies. Uh, it was in Hamburg. It was freezing cold. The, it was critical to warm the tires up to the line. They were rally tires. They were hard. Who knows when they, how old they were. So the whole time through the tunnel of the stadium, you're break, break, slamming <laughs> around everywhere, just yeah. understeering everywhere, trying to get to heat in the fronts. The whole way, it was this ridiculous spastic ballet of these two cars just slopping around all the way up to the line. Whoever could warm them up the best would yeah. win. Yeah. And got at the line, and then Vettel waves, and he brings one of the – the um, scrutineers over and he says there's something wrong with the suspension and he has to go trade the car out and he leaves me there for five minutes on the line 
in this freezing night face shows up with a new car and destroys me. It was so he, half he a, lap. a lap when he gets in that car. He does another warm up to get to the line. So he shows up. New with, car. Yeah. yeah. I, it was a half a lap before I could get any heat in the front <laughs> tire, especially half a lap. I knew off the line, I'd have to do a burnout just to get some heat in the rear tires, yeah, which yeah. was worth it. Just to heat and going. it was already going to put you behind. And after, that. Yeah. Afterwards, Michael was like, so what happened to that first half lap? I don't know. It didn't, uh, didn't go so well. And I was like, you know exactly what happened. And I didn't, I mean, I was, I wasn't thinking like on these strategy levels, you know, Yeah, they were just laughing their asses off about it. But uh, yeah, you know, it's in drifting, you know, at that point I'd been doing drifting and rally. I think of those two sports, they're the most visceral sports ever. You're coming through a corner and rally that you maybe you've seen one or two times and never in the condition that it's in. Drifting, no two runs are the same, and you're door-to-door with somebody doing something totally different. So both yeah. are just completely visceral. There's no plan whatsoever that sticks past second gear. Yeah. And there's uh, – so I never really did anything that involved strategy or forethought or, or anything like that. So even that little game, you know, and this was a, this was, you know, race of champions is basically like a, to us, it would be like going to K one and going karting, you know, for those guys they are coming off of formula one seasons and yeah. stuff. And this just sort of a, a time they drink at night, you know, they they're partying, they don't have to, you know, be fit, you know, or anything like that. It's just for fun. So, um, it, uh, yeah, so that 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 started um, at that point. I mean, I I realized that you know in real racing, in real racers, that you know these guys. I think Schumacher was the highest paid athlete in the world at that time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, these, you know, there's nothing by chance. Everything is done with a with a thought process beforehand, with a strategy, with an anticipation of how it's going to go, and an analyzation of why it didn't go that way or why it did. Yeah. And uh, and I think I got more serious after that, not because of getting schooled by Vettel, but just around that time in kind my of. career, combined. <laughs> with <that>. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean that that's all that's all good stuff too, and that is that is the thing about that's something I talk about even when I'm doing like AMG Academy and giving a basic line talk. I always tell the story of, of um, basically that there's only that Ernest Hemingway said, there's only three real sports in the world, mountaineering. So you're, you're good for, for two of the three, by the way, mountaineering, bullfighting, unless I don't know something about you that you're about to tell me and I'm out and motorsports. <laughs> I was waiting for this revelation. <laughs> I've done all three. <laughs> But but the reason Hemingway said that was that they're the three that, you know, basically can kill you, that you've got real skin in the game. He says every other quote unquote sport, they're merely games. You know, they're games because they're you know, they're just they're they're there's not that serious an outcome to getting it completely wrong. And so, you know, it does take that sort of of, you know, mental focus kind of realizing the, you know, you mentioned physiology, or I, I said it, but you were talking about it, but physiology, psychology, like the effect that all of this stuff has on you in the moment, we're saying, we, you know, we're not super smart when we're out in the car. We're pretty smart here. We can think about things and laugh about things and go on tangents and all of that. But in the car, we've got that 
that little bit of cognitive bandwidth and we're relying on all this muscle memory to get us through all these corners. And then we're trying to add little bits of refinement to whatever we're doing, you know, as we go to try and maximize this limited amount of time we get on a track to, to try and maybe beat the people that showed up here to, to race against us, you know? And it's, um, it's really an incredible thing when you think about sort of that mental focus that's required to, to kind of see this through. And I think that's why it's so challenging. It's why you love being a pilot. You know, it's kind of the same sort of thing where you have to maintain focus for very long amounts of time, you know, in, in tasks that can be kind of mundane because you do them so often, but there's so much risk involved for that moment when something goes wrong um, that you need to be on top of it at all times. It's the same thing we talk about when we talk about autonomous cars. Like, you know, how are you going to take over in an emergency when you haven't been paying attention because your car has been driving you? you know, for two hours, like how, how do you expect a human being to do that? Like we're not, we're not invested. And, and maybe, maybe that's the ultimate thing about driving is that, you know, when we get to drive a good car, whether it's on a nice road or maybe it is, you know, K1 karting, or maybe it's a formula one car race of champions or all the, all the cool things you've ever done, you know, jumping a truck, you know, over 300 feet and breaking a world record, you know, all those things are, are just this, this moment where you get to have a very, pure time in your life where you're just solely focused on this one thing and and just taking so much pleasure in in doing this thing competently um you know it and and there's there's just this i think this real satisfaction that comes out of it and i i think that maybe you know when you're talking about in the very beginning when we started talking you said you had this obsession with driving like to me it's that you know it that's that's what the obsession is it's those it's those amazing moments. And sometimes those moments are, are, are just a moment in one corner. <laughs> like, like that's all I'm really proud of is like one part of one corner one day. Um, it, it could be several laps. It could be a whole race. It could be a race season. Um, it could be time, a really great downhill on my mountain bike, um, or it could be on a pair of skis. The, though the car, though, is always going to be the ultimate because it's the most complicated machine. And so I think I take more pride out of controlling that versus anything else do you how do you feel about the the airplane versus the car what are your thoughts on well that? I, when i got into uh flying which was the day after top gear stopped filming i had already arranged uh i think that was like february 15th and i know uh it was january 31st and february 1st i was already signed up started lessons got a license really quick um the girl i was dating at the time katie osborne she didn't like flying was actually afraid of flying and she had no problem flying with me because she said, I'm trying to remember how she said it, but she said that um, she'd never really seen somebody just obsess over learning the material, watching the video every yeah. single minute that I had yeah, um, and completely focused. So she was like, if there's one thing for sure is, you know, the, he knows his shit about that stuff and that's um there's it's possibly the risk factor i don't know if you ever been like okay i better know this because i could die but it's almost like you described it's more what drives the obsession there like with cars is the um the responsibility you're allowed to have yeah like uh, there are few things and they're getting fewer that yeah. you really are allowed to have that much responsibility. And I fly over LA over millions of people 
I'm responsible for maintaining my own engine, checking that things are okay before the flight. Uh, there's nobody watchdogging that I've fixed this thing that came, you know, loose last week or this thing. Once you crash, they're going to go through your logs and see that you fixed everything. But um, before you crash, while you're, you know, in the moment, you're, you're, the responsibility you're taking on is something that can't last in our society. And we're the last generation that's going to get it. And that's sad as hell, but it, it, I am in a better mood for the rest of the day after flying for sure. Even if I just go fly around the Hills and come back and land again, it doesn't have to be, you know, I save time by going somewhere or some analytical thing. It's there's something just about having done the work, to get the license, to get the plane, to get the access, and then to take the responsibility. And then, like you said, the the craft and the way that you do it, and then to, to, to put it away and be done with it. There's, there's something so relaxing about that. It's, it's like a therapeutic for sure. And yeah. I'm sure driving is like yeah. that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Driving is like that for me too. It, it exercises those parts of your brain and of your psyche and that you, that otherwise, and most people, I think, well, a lot, in a lot of cases anyway, they, those parts of their brain lay dormant for a lifetime. The competition, like you forget, you know, some people, the last time they had a competitive drive against somebody was in kickball in elementary school and and now it comes out in road rage right because it's frustrated you don't experience road rage probably i don't no and it's um i chuckle a lot of what's going on around i do too but i get a i get that part of my brain exercised elsewhere yeah and and i get to yell at somebody in my helmet (laughs) on the racetrack (laughs) that's right um but if there's uh yeah so I, I i think kind of holding the weight of that responsibility and cashing in on the skills that you've put in your tool bag and using them to to exercise that um it, it's something super therapeutic about that that is really hard to describe yeah. i think i think you'd sum that up i think in a way and again we're being a little self-serving here talking like this, but I think it's absolutely true. But to me, like, this is the only way I get to sit in, you know, lay in my deathbed or whatever the case may be and say that was a life well lived. In a way, like Mm -hmm. I want to, it's like, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt was quoted or is is given the credit for saying, scare yourself a little every day. Um, Mm -hmm. And and, it's like that, isn't it? It's like, you know, challenge yourself and and engage yourself and find passion and find obsession in, you know, and all of these things. And, and what we're describing is like kind of a, a really healthy outlet to do that in either flying a plane or motorsports or, or just something where, like you said, engage that brain. Yeah. Right. And maybe there, that's, a, that's a great place to kind of leave this. Unless you have a couple of any little closing thought, um, then I, I just, no, I mean, I, well, yeah, yeah, you know, no. I'm, I'm good. Yes, yesterday I gave my sister a ride back to Denver. I took her to DIA, and it, to, just to caveat everything we've said, I have a tractor with wings. I don't have like a jet or some fancy, <laughs> you know, thing. I have a Bonanza that's a great plane, well built. Um, 
Uh, very efficient, actually. Probably gets better gas mileage than virtually any other car that I have, sadly. But um, the I gave my sister a ride to Denver, and I opted to take her straight to DIA and land with all the triple sevens and taxied under the you know the the A bridge yeah. by A terminal and everything in this you know little you know taxing along with all watching the jet. the jet wash from everything yeah, totally the wings going over the top and <laughs> yeah. it's like uh it, the taxi was felt almost as long as the flight it was about a 40 minute <laughs> flight and the taxi took you know, at least 10 minutes anyway but it was got there and my sister was like and you know it's non-stop i on the ground i talked to five people five different frequency changes just to taxi through wow. different sections of the airport. Yeah, I had no idea it was like that. And um, I've never landed in an airport that big. Not just slotting in with the jets and going as fast as you can right to the ground. But then yeah, exactly. Taxi. And we got there. My sister was silent the whole time, just letting me deal with the radio. Yeah. And shut the thing off. She's like, I am so sorry. We could have gone to that. And I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> that was like, oh, my God. That was like the best. <laughs> you that know? Is, and, that's that's and I've, I've flown with you and i i agree i mean you're a hell of a pilot and actually any of my racing friends are all really good pilots nico is a great you know, great pilot um steve dynan is a is a really yeah. really good pilot um and so that's really cool and i mean that's i mean i think that's a great way to sum it up i want to i want to thank you so much um your dear friend um, you're a hell of a racer. And the thing, the thing about Tanner, I think hopefully you guys have all enjoyed this is sort of how introspective you are and how well-spoken you are about all these things you do and how you've done them. And you can see again, why you've had the career you've had, you know, and, uh, why you're thought of the way you are, why no bridges were burned behind you and everyone's happy to have you back and talk to you. Um, and, uh, it was really cool, I think, to kind of for us to sit down, you and I, who've been good friends for a really long time, and I, I learned a whole bunch um, just chatting with you, things we've never, ever talked about because we never really, you know, kind of had had this hanging over us while we did it. So, Tanner, yeah, if we've I, ever I talked this you. long. We've talked this long. I've already had a couple of drinks at this point. You stayed sober, obviously. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm the drive you home in the van. <laughs> yeah, the conversation just got less and less interesting as we went. So finally, you're like, we're done. So yeah. thank you very much, Paul, for having me. And I'll, I will continue to pay you back for not firing me after getting kicked out of Tokyo Dells that one fateful night. But uh, really appreciate it. And uh, obviously, love the book. So uh, thanks for letting me be a part of yeah, that. Thanks. And, and read Tanner's forward in my book. It, it is really thoughtful and great. It's a once you've maybe seen this and then you read that, it all kind of makes sense. But um, Tanner, again, thanks so much. Uh, I had a ton of fun. I hope you did, too. And I hope everyone watching uh, also enjoyed this this very long several episode version of, of the Optimum Drive pod, podcast happily featuring my good friend and great driver, Tanner Faust. Thanks, Tanner. Thank you.